Welcome to The Litigation War Room, where you will hear great stories and great insights from some of the nation's most accomplished courtroom lawyers. Here is your host, litigation attorney, Maxwell Goss. On this episode, I talk with former U.S. Attorney Matthew Schneider, who now handles white-collar defense and investigations as a partner at the Honigman Law Firm. Matthew tells never-before-heard stories about how his office handled major law enforcement challenges, including the COVID outbreak and civil unrest following the death of George Floyd. He also talks about busting the leadership of the UAW on corruption charges and about his current practice handling internal investigations. Finally, Matthew offers advice for attorneys looking to make a career in public service. I hope you enjoy this fascinating interview. The Litigation War Room is a proud sponsor of the State Bar of Michigan's Business Law Symposium on January 20th, 2022. After my interview with Matthew Schneider, stick around for my chat with leading personal injury attorney, Mike Morse, who gives a preview of his presentation on building a fireproof law firm. Matthew Schneider, welcome to the Litigation War Room. Thank you very much for having me, Max. It's an honor and I'm looking forward to the program. Well, it's an honor to have you on. Among your other distinctions, you served as U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan and are now in private practice as a partner at the Honigman Law Firm. We have a lot of interesting things to talk about today. I'm looking forward to hearing about how you successfully investigated and busted corruption at the UAW and talking about some of the battles and controversies during your time at the Justice Department in the the age of COVID, which was a challenging time for for all of us. But before we get into some of that stuff, can you just tell our listeners a little bit more about your background and how it is that, you know, just just a quick overview of your career and how it is that you were appointed as U.S. Attorney? Sure. So I've spent pretty much my whole career in government and uh, in some capacity working in the executive or judicial or legislative branch. I've covered all three of them. I haven't been in a law firm since right after law school. So now I'm a partner at Honigman, as you indicated. And, you know, it's it's much different from being a junior associate your first year out of law school, that's for sure. But I started out of law school. I graduated from the University of Michigan. And then uh, I went to a large firm in Washington, D.C. I was there for one year, one month, and one day. And then uh, I went to the White House after that. And I was at President George W. Bush's first term. I was legal advisor and handled budget issues, wrote the president's signing statements, executive orders. It was, it was a fascinating job. It was either that or the CIA, which I had a couple of flirtations with the CIA. And I've spent a fair amount of time at Langley. And I was blessed to be able to continue to do that after I was U.S. attorney, which was which was really great. But I picked the White House route instead. And then I stayed there for a couple of years and then essentially took a lateral move to stay in the executive branch to become an assistant U.S. attorney in Detroit. And uh, that was great because I wanted to get married and didn't want to raise children in Washington, D.C. So came back to Michigan and I served in that office for eight years. And then I went to the Michigan Supreme Court as the chief of staff and general counsel of the court. But I really missed uh, being in the courtroom. So that's when I went over to the state attorney general's office and kind of worked my way up there and became deputy attorney general. And that, that was a fabulous experience. Worked on some great cases. Larry Nasser case. I was the first prosecutor handling that case and uh, worked on the Detroit bankruptcy case. I represented the state of Michigan and the governor in that case. And that was great. 
And then I was fortunate to be appointed as the U.S. attorney. And that's uh, that's where I spent just over three years uh, working for the Justice Department again, which was a great experience to be able to see the people I used to work with in that office. I had a lot of good friends there, and I got to go back, and they were still there, and that was fantastic. Yeah, that's fabulous. And you have been in private practice now for just about a year. Is that about right? That's right. February 2nd will be one year. We'll come back to this at the end, but just what kind of work are you doing now in private practice? It's very similar to what I was doing before. I work very cooperatively with the FBI and with law enforcement. Um, I also uh, I do investigations. I do white-collar defense. And oftentimes that you know, might be a situation where one of my clients has a problem where they've been hacked or they've got legal problems not of their own making. They might be a victim. And I've been able to, to uh, interact with a lot of victims And then, of course, as any criminal defense uh, attorney happens, sometimes my clients are the bad people who might have committed a financial misdeed or something like that. And uh, again, I've been able to work very cooperatively with law enforcement on those cases. And it's, it's been fascinating. I've really enjoyed it. Well, look forward to hearing more about that. But let's talk about your time as a U.S. attorney. And there's really too many things, too many topics to cover in one podcast. But one of your signature accomplishments was an investigation that you led of the UAW, the United Auto Workers Union. How did that come about? So that investigation uh, predated the time when I was U.S. attorney, and it, it took a lot of unraveling. And there were really three different types of corruption that faced the UAW. Individuals who were misusing union funds was one example. And then bribery, where people were taking bribes for people who were vendors to the UAW. And then it was also embezzlement by UAW officials. And, you know, when it really boils down to it is the the UAW was uh, and still is a fabulous, strong, great institution and the workers there are the best. And it happened to be that they were governed by people who were corrupt. And that was really a shame because the workers did not do anything wrong. And at the end of the day, that factored a lot into my thoughts about how to resolve that case. Because uh, one of the thoughts was, should the UAW be fined extensively? And I really thought about that. And I thought, well, who pays for the fine? right? The, the workers, ultimately. That's money out of their pocket. And so I just didn't feel that was appropriate, you know, to, to do that. I thought clearing out the union of wrongdoers, people who were committing crimes, getting them out of there, and then putting a, in a monitor to make sure that this never happened again. Those are some of the most important aspects of it. You said that you inherited it or the investigation really began before your tenure. What did you do to get your arms around this and to uh, uh, tackle the investigation when you took over? So at the start, it was individual cases, right? Individual union leadership members who were committing crimes. And what I realized was this is a lot larger than that. And it, it, it's more of like um, kind of a racketeering enterprise is what happened with the Teamsters, for example. You know, it, it's a group of people who, if they are able to corrupt the entire group, then they create tremendous problems. And I thought the problem is really much larger than just individuals. And we needed to have some period of oversight where we could have someone in place, like an independent monitor, who could have independent authority to take action. 
And I also thought that the way to govern themselves really should be up to the UAW members. And so uh, a lot of been, has been said about one person, one vote. And, and how it had been done historically since the beginning of the UAW was really that the leadership was chosen by other leadership members. That's how they elected their leaders. And I had always thought, well, you know, the principles of a republic or democracy are that the people select their leaders. And wouldn't that be a better way to run an organization? But I also thought, you know, I'm not a union member. I mean, I've driven a fork truck. I've driven a truck. I've worked in factories. You know, but I'm not a member myself. So I shouldn't be forcing that on them. They should decide that for themselves. And that's exactly what happened. So that decision about how to govern themselves was put to the, the vote of the membership. And the membership decided that they wanted to change the way they selected their leaders. And that's all the power to them. I also want to talk about your time running the Justice Department here in the Eastern District of Michigan. Tell us about some of the specific uh, challenges that arose because of the coronavirus crisis. Right. It's a great question. I have to tell you that if you're going to take on a role like that, some of these things were completely unexpected. So I come into office and almost immediately the government can't pass a budget and the government is shut down. Now, if you don't work for the federal government, who cares, right? That doesn't really impact you. But if your paycheck comes from the government, that's a big deal. And especially for somebody who's not necessarily a lawyer, but a support staff member or an IT person or a paralegal, if you miss a paycheck, that's hard. If you miss two paychecks, that can be very devastating. And it was devastating. And we were government workers and we just kept working. We kept doing our work. And not only that, but uh, I actually had to get uh, open a food bank in the office. I worked with gleaners cooperatively, and gleaners was able to donate food. And so we brought the food into the office, and then a lot of people took it because they needed that. They didn't have paychecks. Wow. These are attorneys in your office? Everyone in federal law enforcement. I mean, think about it that way. It's not like the FBI and the marshals and the DEA and the ATF. They didn't stop working. Uh, they just kept doing it, and they just weren't getting paid. And so all of those search warrants, we're still working hard. We're still doing all of that, and people are banging doors down and arresting people who are violent and dangerous. And all the time, they are not getting a paycheck. Wow, and uh, amazing. Yeah, it is just a, a, tr- a total tribute to the men and women who do that job. It was very eye-opening. Absolutely. Well, tell us about just the law enforcement environment after the COVID crisis hit. Right. So so that, that was prior to COVID. And then we're going through the law enforcement issues, and the president is Donald Trump. And I don't know if you've heard this or not, but he is slightly controversial. And so <laughs> there is a lot of animosity because we are working in the Trump administration. And the Justice Department and our office in Detroit is an apolitical group. But nevertheless, there were a lot of kind of attacks on that. And then when COVID hits, the first response is COVID is going through the jails and the prisons. So let's get people out of prison. And as a prosecutor who worked hard to put violent and dangerous people in prison, my thoughts were, okay, everybody, slow down. Hold on a second. You know, the the COVID measures are taking place in our prisons. 
And some of these people are getting out and they're immediately reoffending. And so we're creating victims. And so the amount of arguments I had with federal judges was unbelievable. I mean, it was, had never had these many disagreements with federal judges who were letting folks out of prison that I felt were violent and dangerous. Not all of them were. And, you know, I understand those arguments where it, it made sense to get people out, but there were many cases that I felt were really improper. And so I had a lot of very, very difficult discussions with my colleagues and with the judges. Who, the judges I respect a great deal. They just had a different perspective. Um, and of course, they didn't want people to get harmed from the virus either. So we just saw it from two different viewpoints. Right. And in a way, the judges are caught between a rock and a hard place. You have incarcerated persons who are literally held captive and, and perhaps exposed to the virus because of that. And so right. through no fault of their own. Right. They, you know, they didn't ask for that. And of course, defense attorneys are saying they don't want their clients injured. But then we have victims coming to us saying that person, you know, destroyed my life and I want responsibility taken for that. So that was that was a, a huge challenge. And then that summer, the summer of 2020, of course, there are nationwide protests and the things that go along with that. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how you handled that during your tenure? Right. So you you become the the chief law enforcement officer of the district, which has 6.5 million people. Everybody automatically doesn't have a paycheck. President Trump is saying things on the radio and TV that is, is getting a lot of people upset. Then COVID hits and People are getting out of prison faster than I had wanted. And then there's a tremendous spike in violence. And remember what happened in other parts of the country, in Portland, right? They're burning the federal courthouse. And there's civil unrest after the death of George Floyd. And fortunately, in Detroit, that didn't have as great of an impact because people in Detroit protested peacefully and, for the most part, nonviolently. And that was fantastic. But at the same time, we are increasing law enforcement resources because the homicide rate is going through the roof. And so I am dealing with Bill Barr and my colleagues in the Justice Department to bring additional federal resources to uh, huge amounts of agents are coming in. Well, how is that received by the public? People are saying that what I'm doing and what the Justice Department is doing is trying to go after peaceful protesters. That was not the case at all. It never was the case, but the narrative was out there. And that was extremely difficult to overcome, whereas some people might say federal troops are coming to break up protests. Well, that never happened. It didn't. But once you start that narrative and it goes into the media, it's very difficult to overcome that. And so that was a challenge, you know, but eventually cooler heads prevailed and people realized it took months and months, but people realized that wasn't what we were doing. We were just trying to get a hold on the fact that violent crime was out of control. That's really what we we're doing. Now, Detroit, as you said, was, was really pretty mild, at least in terms of the protests, the things that flowed from those protests, pretty mild compared to some other cities. You mentioned Portland, many other cities as well. I'd love to hear your take on that. Well, why were things a bit different here in Detroit? You know, so I can tell you what I was told by a variety of people was that back in 1960, the 1960s and 67, 
Detroit had, as we know, a significant problem with civil unrest, right? People have called it riots. People have called it an uprising. It doesn't matter what you call it, but it was, it was tragic and a lot of people died. You know, here in Detroit, people talk about that like it was yesterday. And people remember that. And uh, I wasn't even born at that time. And I know it's a huge part of what we are dealing with. And just the fact that that occurred, I had been told by so many people that people did not want that to happen again. And, you know, I had really good conversations with people um, that you might not expect as an appointee of Donald Trump for me to have great conversations with Rashida Tlaib or Debbie Dingell, but I did because that was also part of our mission was let's just make this city safe and let's all work together as a team. And I'm very, very proud of the fact that I was able to work with Republicans and Democrats. I, I can tell you that I would never have been U.S. attorney in the first place if I didn't have a lot of good friends who were Democrats and strong support from them. And I'm really proud of that. And I think that benefited us having a good nonpartisan showing here. Hey guys, I wanna take a moment to tell you about our sponsor, Fort's Legal Support. As busy litigators, there are never enough hours in the day. Why use a bunch of different legal support providers when there's one you can trust for all your needs? Need a process server in Chicago or a trial presentation specialist in LA? How about a court reporter in Dallas or a computer forensic expert in Atlanta? Fort's Legal has you covered. I use Fort's Legal in my litigation practice. They are responsive, economical, and ready to help every step of the way. By leveraging cutting-edge technology and best-of-class resources, Fort's Legal is a trusted partner of solo attorneys and AmLaw 100 law firms alike. Contact Fort's Legal today to learn how their team can assist your law practice. Visit them at fortslegal.com, that's F-O-R-T-Z-L-E-G-A-L.com, or call 844-730-4066. Now, you mentioned uh, Bill Barr. Tell us a bit about your relationship with Attorney General Bill Barr. So we became quite close after the pandemic because there were governors and elected officials and mayors across the country who were issuing these orders that were very disturbing from a constitutional perspective. For example, there were ordinances in other states where you could go out and you could go to a restaurant and get a burger at a drive-thru, and that was okay. But you could not go to a church and stay inside your car with the windows rolled up and turn the radio on to listen to the sermon. That was unlawful, and people were getting arrested for it. And so Bill Barr and I had a lot of conversations about, that's not right. That's infringing on people's religious liberties. And it was happening all across the country. And so I worked with the Justice Department to bring a number of actions, legal actions, in many different states. And sometimes it would be suing. And sometimes it would be siding on to a lawsuit. And we did that um, and were successful against Governor Whitmer in, in Michigan. Um, and sometimes it was just talking to people. You know, I remember just, you know, giving my U.S. attorney colleagues advice. Uh, for example, we were dealing with uh, Gavin Newsom in California. And the, the argument was, okay, so we can, we can sue or we can bring an action or can't we just call him? You know, can't we just explain our perspectives? And that happened 
in a number of cases across the country where we would just call up the governor's legal counsel and and say, you know, look, we don't want to bring a lawsuit, but you have to understand, you got to let people go to church or their synagogue or their mosque if you're going to allow them to go to a restaurant, right? It's just, it makes no sense. And we actually achieved a lot of victories that way. Really? Yes, absolutely. By people realizing, you're right. You know, it's discriminatory, and that's not what we meant. But And a lot of those acts were upheld. I mean, almost all of them were upheld in court, or they were turned around uh, by by the individuals. And it was very successful. We didn't uh, get a chance to advertise that through the mainstream media as much as possible. (laughs) But at the time, people thought we were pushing back improperly. You know, that we got a lot of pushback on that, too, because people were saying it's a pandemic, people are dying, and you're trying to uh, allow that to happen. Well, no, we just want to make sure that during a pandemic, that doesn't mean that the Constitution is somehow not existent. You, you don't, you just don't abandon all of your constitutional rights in the time of, of a pandemic. And that has never been the law. It, it wasn't the law in 1918. It wasn't the law in the Civil War. You know, we still had to follow the Constitution, even though they were we were going through a time of great crisis. And that was exactly what we were trying to do. Right. And then meanwhile, there's these things going on behind the scenes. And as you say, from those of us just uh, watching from the sidelines, we have no idea these things are going on and that not everything is the occasion for a lawsuit or legal action or confrontation. It's very interesting to hear some of that untold story about how just old-fashioned persuasion, um, at least in some cases, sounds like uh, carried the day. Well, and there, you know, some of these things will never be known uh, to the public because, for example, we had our own infighting with uh, law enforcement, and there were issues that we disagreed about. And uh, Chief Craig was one of the first people I called when I became—he actually was the first person I called when I became U.S. attorney because I needed to build a, a strong relationship with him, and I cared so much about that. But he and I had our disagreements, and we just wound up not airing them in public. We figured them out on our own. And um, it was trying, it was difficult, but we came to a professional resolution on how to handle law enforcement in the city. And um, it's, we didn't have to bother the public with them knowing about that. Right. We worked it out. I got to say, that's encouraging to hear. By definition, that's not the kind of things that, that we hear about is simply when our leaders work things out behind the scenes. Right. It happened a lot. And again, you know, the uh, tremendous disagreements we had with, the, uh, with judges also, that didn't always that didn't have to be played out in public, you know. Um, and that's it should be done that way more often, I think. And that's I mean that's what we're either appointed or elected. That's what the taxpayers are paying you to do. They're they're paying you to solve the problem. They're not paying you to have a, a bunch of political fights out in the media, right? That's generally not that usually never works out very well, right? Right. They want the problem solved, and that's what we did. And Folks will never really know the details. I'd like to segue into your current work. So you told us a bit about your current practice at Honigman. Can you tell us more and tell us about how your government work and your your role as a U.S. attorney in particular has informed what you're doing these days? Well, it really has. One of the cases I worked on was for uh, Central Michigan University. And Central Michigan had an issue where there were some allegations that some of its staff 
may have committed uh, misconduct by being involved in an action involving a public affairs firm in Lansing, uh, where there was some sexual harassment allegations and conduct. And so we looked into that, and at the end, we we produced a report. And, you know, that's really what uh, I've been doing a lot of that, kind of those internal investigations. And it's like running a grand jury investigation, right? It's like interviewing witnesses, doing judgment calls, making sure that people are credible, finding out what the best solution is for the client to move forward. But here that my client's not the United States, it might be Central Michigan or an individual. And the principle I have found, and I find this to be quite comforting, the principle is the same, which is to tell the truth, to find out what happened. And that's what we did at Central Michigan in our investigation. Find out what happened, tell the truth about it, and tell your client what the truth is. I have never felt in private practice this year, I've never felt that I had to not tell the truth, and which is good because that's not something that I, I would be able to do. And so I, I think it, from that respect, it's very similar to um, working for the government. And if, if you're always going to tell the truth, you, it's a lot easier because you don't have to remember what you've said. You know, you just have to remember what was right. Let me wrap up by asking you this. If there was a younger attorney who wanted to, nobody's going to follow the same path that you did, and there's only so many people who are going to be a U.S. attorney, but someone who wanted to make their mark in public service and in government work, what advice would you give to such a person? You know, what I would say to a young person is, is like the rest of your life is like climbing up a long ladder, okay? And when you are climbing up that ladder, you're going to be very successful, in terms of, you know, finances or wealth or success or, you know, or, or your work or your family. As you're climbing up, you should be very nice to the people that you pass on the ladder of life. And you shouldn't be rude to them. You should always be polite and nice to those folks. Because when they later pass you, they will remember. And, <laughs> and that has happened. Ain't that the truth? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that gets overlooked. Uh, so many times, especially by young people, because, you know, the person that you're really rude to, they might be your boss in a year. And I, I've seen that happen. And it's happened to me a number of times where when I was very young, people treated me pretty poorly. And uh, they have now come back and they've asked me to hire them. Uh, they've asked me for help. And you know, I've, I've never been mean to them. I've never, you know, told them off. Uh, I just, you know, I wasn't inclined to help as, mu as much, you know, because I remembered. But I think if you have some forgiveness, that's helpful. But I guess to boil all of that down, it's just be nice to everyone, right? If you just do that, it's going to come around and benefit you. Yeah, good advice. Well, Matthew Schneider, is there anything else that you'd, you'd like our listeners to know? Yeah, you know, I think these principles about being nice to everyone, it, it doesn't appear to be um, playing out in politics today. Unfortunately, <laughs> you, no. You know, and, uh, you know, I've been asked to run for office numerous times, and uh, it, it's, it's very messy out there right now. And uh, I would hope that more civility could come into politics and public affairs, because if it doesn't, if you have people are, who are simply lying, lying about their record or lying about your record, 
it discourages people from wanting to go into into public service. It's a huge discouragement. Um, and I, I hope we can get a hold of this and everyone just bring down the temperature, right? Just just stop. It seems like, you know, when you're emailing somebody and you put it in all capital letters, you know, that that it, that says something. And right now, everyone is using all capital letters all the time. And we just have to get back to where we were before, where people could disagree without being so disagreeable. And hopefully that'll happen as soon as possible. Absolutely. I mean, as you suggested, how many good people are kept out of public service? just because of how ugly the environment is. I mean, politics is always uh, brutal, I'm sure, is it? You know, at least that's the way it looks to me uh, as an outside observer. But the way it is today, how, how many people uh, who otherwise might consider it and who would, who would be great candidates just stay out because of how ugly it is? Right, and politics are going into public service. I remember quite recently that was a very honorable profession. And um, now if everyone involved is lying about everybody else and yelling all the time, it degrades that profession and it discourages good people from doing it. Well, Matthew Schneider, it's really been a pleasure to talk with you today. Where can listeners find you or find out more about you? I'm at Honigman, Honigman.com. I, I believe it's a wonderful law firm. I've been so pleased to be there. And, uh, it's full of hardworking, incredibly great lawyers. And uh, it's a Michigan-based law firm, but we've got a practice all across the country, and I've got clients everywhere. And so you can find me on the Honigman website, and uh, I'm more than happy to help people and will work through their problems. Well, that's great. Well, Matthew, I really enjoyed talking with you today. It was really a pleasure to have you on the Litigation War Room. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. The Litigation War Room is a proud sponsor of the State Bar of Michigan's Business Law Symposium on January 20th, 2022 at the Detroit Club. The symposium will feature dozens of speakers and panelists on the topic of the business of the law firm. I had a chance to speak with several speakers and panelists about their forthcoming presentations. I hope you enjoy these short interviews. Good afternoon, Mike. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Uh, Mike Morris, it's great to have you on again and really excited to hear the thoughts you're going to share at the upcoming Business Law Symposium hosted by the State Bar of Michigan. Not that you need any introduction, but could you just start by telling our listeners uh, just a little bit about yourself and about your law firm? Uh, sure, yeah. Born and raised here in Michigan, went to law school in Detroit, been practicing just coming up on 30 years my law firm, the Mike Morse Law Firm, was opened in 1995, and we've been handling personal injury matters throughout the state. Since that time, we've grown to about 170 people. We settle roughly 150 to $160 million worth of cases every year. And we wrote a book uh, last year called Fireproof, Taking Your Law Firm from Unpredictable to Wildly Profitable. And I plan on talking in January about the book and the things that I've learned over the last 30 years. Yeah, that's great. Your talk is titled um, The Fireproof Law Firm. Can you tell listeners, just uh, give them a quick preview of what to expect from your presentation at the symposium? So I've been fired from jobs. I've been fired from referral partners. I had a fire in my building. It's a theme. And for me, good things have happened after all of those seemingly bad things. 
we've come up with a five-step model that if you do these five things, you can handle any type of fire, any type of earthquake, any type of COVID or thing like that. And it's proving true. We are selling lots of books and we are now coaching 25 law firms across the United States about this method. And they are showing wildly amazing results. So I'm excited to share some of the pillars of this. Well, well, that's great, Mike. As you know, I've read your book and profited from it. And uh, I know that the attendees at the symposium um, are going to profit from your remarks as well. Uh, I think that the topic you're talking about is really relevant uh, in this time and is really going to be relevant and, and helpful to, to our audience. So, so we're looking forward to it, Mike. Thanks. Hey, I look forward to it too. And be sure to check out the symposium website at bizsymposium.com. That's B-I-Z symposium.com. You have been listening to The Litigation War Room with litigation attorney Maxwell Goss. Maxwell Goss represents clients in intellectual property and business cases in Michigan and around the country, bringing forceful advocacy and creative solutions to every case he handles. For show notes and more episodes, please visit us at thelitigationwarroom.com. That's thelitigationwarroom.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to The Litigation War Room. And please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The Litigation War Room, including the podcast and all website content and social media on all platforms, is for informational and entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not provide legal advice and does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship under any circumstance. All views, opinions, and statements expressed by guests are those of the guests making them and not those of the Litigation War Room.